Welcome to This Week, Next Week from Group M. I'm Brian Weezer. And I'm Kate Scott Dawkins. And wow, what another crazy week. There are some weeks where nothing's going on, but yet again, yet again, too much information, or maybe it's just we have such grand aspirations to know everything that's possible to know. And so there's always too much to know. And what do we know from this week? Retail oh boy. Sales. Yeah, mostly e-commerce and retail sales. That was easy. This was like... This, I mean, we already had like our big Super Bowl of data a few weeks ago, but this was like a big, big week for anything. Re global retail sales on a number of levels. It's like, it, it's like triple witching uh, retail week. You know, you get your, not only do you get your US and your uh, UK and your Chinese retail sales, Japan produced new data, Canada produced new data, but we also get new e-commerce data. Yep. And then we had companies reporting. That was the that's sort of the the triple part, right? The country data from many many countries. We get the uh, e-commerce data, granular U.S. e-commerce data from the government, uh, U.S. government and companies. So that's the triple trifecta uh, we have to talk about. So settle in, buckle up, you know, get comfy because here yeah, we get go. Comfy. <laughs> get comfy. Oh, we, don't worry. We'll be you'll be able to relax because we are going to have a story time. Uh, a, a, an original uh, segment on this week's uh, this week next week coming up later. Story time will happen, but first we've got to plow through this really really important news. All right, so the numbers are coming in, and, and at a high level, it appears that retail sales are still doing better than uh, inflation. Not everywhere, but it still looks like consumers are spending at retail channels at a pretty high clip supported by inflation but um i mean i don't know the first standout number to me uh the july data uh for the us uh what 8.6 percent growth i guess is kind of the the all-in number uh, on an annual basis um even if you strip out um fuel you still get um 5.9 percent growth for x gasoline stations now that would be a number below and in where inflation was so that's kind of negative in that sense but it's um still pretty strong numbers um yeah gasoline was what 39 percent or something year over year so really pushing that up there yeah absolutely um just looking at some of the other countries and there's so 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 much data to uh to look at uh maybe the first one that stands out to me um i guess we had uh, the uk that that no those numbers came in a little bit soft yeah yeah, especially food and what household, uh, well, food growing below inflation rates there, as well as retail sales um, and household goods seeing a, a decline there, 6% um, year over year. Yeah. Um, Canada data also came out, um, although this data is for June, uh, and there they're still pushing double digits on retail sales growth. So um, pretty well above where inflation is there. Uh, any other uh, countries that stood out to you? Well, we had um, the Japan data from Medi last week, uh, at least through 2021. So <laughs> it's not July data, but we get it once a year. It's very exciting. It's like Christmas. Um, and they give us a, a breakout of uh, categories as well. So huge growth. And this is um, e-commerce now specifically. Uh, huge growth across all categories, especially audio, video equipment, home appliance, uh, computing in 2020, and then um, seeing deceleration across all categories, uh, 2021 year end, um, food and beverages, uh, interestingly, 
the the largest growth of all the categories for 2021. Um, right. So that's holding steady. Now, interestingly, e-commerce has taken on some different trends. Um, actually, just getting some spe more specific numbers in, say, the UK, you know, if the average weekly value of overall retailing was up 5.7% in July, um, internet sales were actually down 4.2% in July after being down by um, uh, high single digits, basically, in the second quarter. Uh, so yeah. Seeing that as a common trend where, in many countries, e-commerce is, um, well, growing slower than retail right now. Yeah, and this is something that has surprised people when we've um, showed them initial e-commerce numbers. Uh, again, a plug, our e-commerce report is going to be coming out in September, so you'll be able to read all about it there. Um, but yeah, I think in, in the UK especially, we're going to see a decline in the uh, penetration rate for e-commerce this year, um, which I think a lot of people just assumed, you know, it would keep growing after 2020. Yeah, well, and to be fair, and this was always the difficult thing. Like, I'm looking at the year of year growth rate for internet sales in the UK. Like, these 2021 numbers, January e commerce sales were plus 82%, then plus 89.9% in February, and then plus 69.6%, and then plus 34 I mean, these growth rates the UK had were just way above, uh, I mean, anything you should have realistically expected. Yeah. <laughs> We just didn't know what was a new plateau. And by the way, that has an impact on media and advertising because there is a very direct relationship between spending on uh, advertising from many of these companies, uh, special and digital platforms and coming down. Um, I mean, to be clear, the, the comps are actually not that bad, but the plateaus were so, so high has an impact. Yeah. And I, I mean, the UK was further along in its e-commerce penetration than uh, most other uh, markets that we track other than China. Um, so maybe a little bit less headroom for that plateau as well. Um, but you get like Japan year over year data, there's still only a, you know, eight or 9% penetration, which is Surprising, I think, when you when you just think about Japan as an economy and how technologically advanced they are. Or the yeah. This is a critical point that I don't think enough people appreciate um, that because the definitions of e-commerce can be different in different countries, that actually impacts the comparison. To be true, like the way you described it is absolutely correct for Japan. Of course, the Canadian headline rate is only about five percent, right? Five percent of total retail sales is going through e-commerce channels. However they include auto sales in their numbers. Japan, do they include autos in their numbers or no? Uh, yeah, well, when we're looking at, I'm referencing the data modeling that we've done. And so we've corrected for that. Yeah. Um, and we're looking at everything, including, it does skew headline UK numbers for sure, because they exactly. don't include autos. Um, but Canada and Japan still, well, below sort of the, the rates of e-commerce penetration we're seeing across China, the UK, the US. Exactly. It does make a big difference in terms of the uh, the actual numbers. Uh, the, the general trends aren't always that different. So total e-commerce growth in the US um, during the second quarter was about 7.3%, not far from total retail sales of 7.7. If we exclude autos from the calculation, uh, e-commerce actually grew by 7.9%, so slightly higher. Um, well, maybe this is a good segue into talking about uh, a few retailers that reported this week, because we have e-commerce growth figures for them as well. What stood out to you? Um, so we are, I 
went through the the transcripts the calls for target walmart the home depot and lowe's um and all of them i guess lowe's showing a sort of similar e-commerce growth rate around seven percent but target uh year-over-year growth in the second quarter of nine percent and uh 12 percent growth in digital sales for both walmart and the home depot um so those companies that have invested in their platforms and, and they spoke a lot about um this comes down to measurement as well fulfilling in stores so a lot of these sales are people that purchase something and then picked it up in the store as well yeah this gets to uh, one of the really blurry things about e-commerce like when do you count it as e-commerce or when do you not count it as e-commerce um if you're physically in a store you're browsing a product um you 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 know you're physically then use your phone to make the purchase and then go pick it up is that e-commerce or is that retail yeah it's a good question i mean i think target uh said more than 95 percent of their second quarter sales were fulfilled by its stores and that's even if uh some of those sales were made digitally so yeah it's a good it's a good question around how those get accounted for True. Well, over time, I mean, it's, no, it's, it's certainly clear that uh, omni-channel strategies are going to be uh, dominant and trying to find yes. different ways to connect with consumers in different ways. Um, one of the things, comments that stood out to me uh, from uh, the earnings calls that I, I, I heard was, um, I think it might have been one of the home improvement retailers who talked about how their future trends won't necessarily be dependent on you know home building, for example, because if homes are actually older and people are still sitting on cash, that their trends around uh, improving uh, their homes could actually still be favorable. I, I mean, this, it, it makes sense. Yeah, this was really fascinating. So um, definitely the Home Depot said you know, they haven't seen anything in their business uh, yet from some of the macro housing trends we're seeing around home sales slowing down. Um, Lowe's actually spoke about it quite a bit. Um, definitely the, the house age, um, which th- there was a peak housing boom uh, they mentioned in the early 2000s. Those homes are now turning 20 years old. Um, Time for repairs, they're pointing to that. Um, And then also still excess savings they're pointing to, which is a theme that we've spoken about numerous times in relation to this year next year, um, with a lot of equity and savings built up by homeowners. And they feel like that's gonna see them through uh, some of this higher inflation period. Yeah. Well, and I have to say that uh, with all of this retail data, it also is important to keep in mind that while many people look at retail sales data as some sort of proxy for what the consumer is doing or is not doing, we also have to remind everyone that retail activity is still much smaller than total spending by consumers on services. Well, and but those still impact uh, retailers like Lowe's and Home Depot, right? They spend a lot of time talking about their pros business, um, which for consumers might look like paying a contractor to do some work, um, but some of that eventually flows down into uh, you know good sales. And the price of lumber was something that was mentioned a lot on both of those calls as well, um, coming down a bit this year, but impacting the comps from last year. Absolutely. Um, well, maybe moving on to one of the other big things that uh, came out this week. There's a lot of news about sports rights, and and we, we could actually even tie that to the uh, what's happening at Disney with uh, the activist investor Third Point. Yeah, um, ESPN was left out in the cold of the new uh, Big Ten deal. 
I'm sure that wasn't because of Dan Loeb. <laughs> I don't know. You you tell me. I am still getting used to the fact that uh, UCLA, my alma mater, is now in the Big Ten. I was a like firm Pac-12 supporter, so this is all weird. Yeah, it is all weird, especially like, isn't there like one national league? I, I'm Canadian. Come on. We got the CIAU. Isn't that like the big league? No, I'm kidding. Of course, I know that's not nothing compared to the NCAA. But um, but I mean, here's the thing when it comes to sports and, and actually the, there's not only the Big Ten news, but also Champions League. Um, there are a number of other European rights uh, news that was announced today. And I thought it all tied together to the the third point, um, Disney news this week, because, again, if you didn't hear it, um, what happened is the investor third point made um, uh, took a big stake in Disney and uh, made a number of suggestions, uh, one of which was that, that Disney should spin off ESPN. And I think there are those who argue that actually, no, it's, it's actually still important. It's still critical um, to the business and it's worth keeping. Now, let's go back in time. Uh, one of the points I made uh, when I was a self-set analyst was that the cost of sports rights in particular, which is the thing that holds the bundle together of whatever is left of traditional cable, is only going to go up at a phenomenal pace. And all other valuable content is going to continue to go up on a like-for-like -like basis at a phenomenal pace. I actually built out a data set of uh, all major leagues, college and professional in the US over about 20 plus year period of time. And I calculate, like you'd, you'd often hear these, you know, eye-watering numbers like the rights double year over year. Yeah. Well, no, technically what happens is a one 10 year agreement comes out at a, you know, some price and there's a prior 10 year agreement that it was at a different price. But what I tried to calculate was what was the CAGR, the compound annual growth rate for sports rights on a like for like basis to the extent that you know, you could try to make them comparable and rights evolve over time to include digital or don't include digital. It might be more games or fewer games, more hours of programming or fewer hours, all sorts of other variations. But essentially what I could calculate was that the compound annual growth rate for like for like sports rights is something like 8%. Okay. Okay. 8% increase in the cost of like for like programming. What Do you remember what our, our uh, estimate was for um, consumer spending on video? Uh, overall, 140 billion or so. Yeah, growing at what three percent roughly. Yeah. And we made estimates around the health of TV. You know, historically in recent years, put aside the weirdness of the pandemic, it's kind of a low single-digit number. Yeah. So roughly, if consumer spending is only going up by a low single-digit percentage, unless the distributors are eating the margin, which some of them are, and if the advertising number is only going up by a low single digit. And the most important rights are only going up by a high single digit number. Uh, sure, you can find other places to cut costs, but you can only cut in so many places and margins must compress. This was always an inevitability for an industry that is dependent on really expensive content. And so the only solution to keep uh, profits up in an absolute sense is to go global. But is that data incorporating the newer competitors for folks like? Uh, like Amazon Prime Video, I mean, their advertising figures are growing up much more quickly than uh, broadcast or cable TV. True, true. But I think when we define uh, television broadly defined, I think we still find it's a low single digit growth rate in total. Um, I think we'll argue 
that whoever has the greatest audience share will tend to take the largest advertising share. And that is another reason why sports rights matters because, hey, you want to drive an audience share, sports is still a really important uh, you know, way to connect advertisers with your media properties and get a larger share wallet. So it's not unimportant. It's just going to compress margins over time. So that's always been a point we've been making. But what was really interesting is, I mean, Champions League is getting more and more important, but this actually was an even more significant rate of increase as far as I could tell. So this deal for Champions League that just came out um, today, Friday, um, I guess what was announced was the uh, that Paramount would be agreeing to about a $1.5 billion deal for six years, I believe. Yeah. Um, the prior deal, I believe, involved Univision and CBS for about $150 million for three years, each year for three years, so called 450. Um, now this deal does not include the Spanish language rights. So that's okay. a separate deal, right? So the like for like number, as far as I can calculate, is about a 250 million per year number relative to a previous $100 million per year. And that compares to the prior deal that Turner and Univision had, where it appears that Turner between 2018 and 2020 was paying 60 million a year. So we've gone from 60 million per year to 250. On a 10 year basis, my crude calculation says that's actually a 15% CAGR. Yeah, well, the uh, big 10 deal as well, just for um, context, that's $7 billion over six or seven years, about a billion dollars a year. The previous deal was two something over six years. Yeah. It's really remarkable how uh, how much that continues to go up. And I think that, um, again, this is where the business is going. If you're dependent on sports rights, you're going and you're a media company, you're going to be paying because it is really the only mass reach TV, as, as we'll hear in a minute, there is mass reach uh, through radio sometimes. <laughs> um, but uh, it, as far as TV goes, it is really the only place to get that mass concurrent reach and therefore it's disproportionately valuable. Yeah. I go back to what uh, Disney said on an earnings call earlier this year about it being like a full third of their content spending on sports or yeah, sports rights. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of the big question and going back to the point that a third point would have made and others have certainly made is that, is it better to just get out of the sports business and focus on the non-sports activities and maybe you can generate a higher margin business that way, but you lose the stuff that draws the mass audiences that causes you to get that first look at a share of wallet. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on what the better strategy is? Because <laughs> if I if I do, they're not paying me enough, or I should be go be uh, leading one of these uh, major network platforms, right? Um, yeah. Well, it's uh, I don't know. It's interesting, right? Um, eventually, there will just be. AI avatars running around a field somewhere you want to have to pay for the athletes. So the answer is create a sports league full of robots and hopefully uh, they'll be entertaining enough to create leagues and the networks own those robots and we go from there. No more wage inflation spiral. It'll be fine. Until <laughs> so the robots get together and rebel. So, you know, All we, right. well, we'll worry about that later. So speaking of mass reach, uh, we decided it would be a really good time to talk to the head of the trade association for one of the media that's most responsible for what mass reach still exists. Um, 
Yeah, at least here in the U.S., that's the Radio Advertising Bureau. Um, we invited its head, Erica Farber, to come talk to us. Joining us now is Erica Farber from the Radio Advertising Bureau, the RAB. Erica, thanks for joining us. How are you? I am great, and thanks for having me. No, well, we're pleased to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what the RAB is, what it does? Sure. Uh, well, my background, admittedly, has been almost 100% in and around the radio business. Uh, I've worked at radio stations. Um, I've worked on the national side for radio, uh, national sales. I've also covered it from an editorial standpoint. And the last 10 years, I've had the pleasure of leading the REB. And the REB is the nonprofit trade association that represents commercial stations across the US for sales and marketing needs, as well as we advocate on behalf of the radio medium uh, to advertisers, agencies, honestly, everyone and anyone who is interested in radio and the audio medium. Awesome. Well, um, you're sounds like you're absolutely the right person to speak to about this. Then, can you explain a little about what you're seeing right now? We're in quite an interesting uh, social and economic uh, circumstance with sort of the COVID pandemic receding mostly. People, some people going back to work, some knowledge workers still at home. Um, that's obviously creating shifts in commuting and other patterns. You know, what are you and your stations and your your constituents seeing in terms of um, patterns that, that tell a story? Uh, well, interesting is certainly a good word for it. <laughs> um, you know, there's been so much discussion uh, during the onset of the pandemic regarding radio listening patterns. And while the workday has started later, for some often office workers, there's been an entire population of people, uh, first responders, hospital workers, transit workers, et cetera, who've continued with their traditional workday. So as the U.S. has opened up, there's still many Americans um, have returned to their behaviors, including their radio listening. So um, according to the latest Nielsen study, the percent of people who have spent one or more hours in a vehicle nearly tripled in March of this year versus April of 2020. So if you're out and among the uh, commuters, you may have noticed that traffic has actually gotten uh, a little more congested since then. So um, I think rumors of, uh, you know, listening did change, admittedly, uh, but a but as I said, a couple of things happened. There were still a lot of people working, um, but I think it also opened up for people that were working at home who don't necessarily have a radio as a device, started to discover that you could stream radio, that they could have access to radio on their computers, their phones, um, smart speakers. So that opened up some new opportunities of listening for us. Well, yeah, so let's dig into to that because we, we know from you know, multiple other channels as well, like TV and out of home, that digital is uh, rapidly eating the world. So what, what do we have 
data on sort of the uptake of this streaming radio smart device listening? And maybe importantly, let's qualify. You're not including YouTube as an audio channel, nor Spotify, nor Pandora, correct? That's correct. When when we refer to radio, um, we are referring to AM, FM and, uh, and how to reach the content of those AM, FM radio stations. And as you say, Brian, you know, digital is certainly playing a part of that listening now. Uh, Look, we know that radio was the original social medium. Uh, so the only difference today is the platform or the device that the consumer is using. Uh, you know, there are there are generations of people when they think of radio, they think of a physical radio. And the definition of radio has changed. So we have content that we provide as radio broadcasters, but you can access that content on multiple devices, depending on how you choose to do that. So we view the increased use of radio across digital platforms or devices as complementary to the listening on broadcast. Do you, do you think though that the, I mean, I'm just going to make up some numbers here. Maybe you've got real numbers that 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 would help. But, I, and I've been pausing this to, to clients lately, and they they say they've never thought about it this way. When I say YouTube probably has more audio activity than any other platform anywhere on Earth, um, Spotify and Pandora obviously are big, SiriusXM big as well. Put together, the audio world is vastly bigger than people understand. And I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of the historical academic research on the effectiveness of audio. Um, does it not make more sense to look at the world in a more unified way? Or do you think there's a real fundamental difference between the terrestrial uh, legacy, shall we say, audio providers? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right that audio usage, if you will, is at an all-time high. So, you know, audio is everywhere. And then you didn't even mention podcast. Oh, podcast. Is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, they say it's a thing. Uh, but I mean, think about that. There's over a million podcasts available. I mean, I think my mailman has a podcast. <laughs> uh, but again, as you say, you know, the use of audio is growing and growing every single day. What makes radio unique. And when I say the word radio, I'm referring to AM FM broadcasters, whether you're listening to their AM FM signal or you're connecting to them digitally, is they are truly the almost last connection with a local community. And that's what separates radio with all of the other content. It is creating community with that local listener. I guess the question is how many advertisers still think that way or organize that way, right? When well, we've seen a big push into more national and international platforms, the growth of you know Google and, and Meta to be able to allow advertisers to reach a, a global audience really very easily. So the question is, you know, is that something that media buyers um want to to see or are in, engaging with well it's certainly something that we need to continue to remind them because 
one of the advantages that we have is that when a message is being heard on broadcast radio, it's being heard to that audience all at the same time. So you can actually see that impact of that message then. You know, on other audio platforms, Kate, you and I may be listening to the same platform, but we're hearing that message. You might be hearing it at 10 a.m. in the morning, and I'm hearing it at 7 p.m. And so we're not reaching a particular audience at the same time with the same impact. It's true. Uh, and, and well, the mass concurrent reach concept is a thing. I mean, I think it's been studied too as an impact. But here's the perplexing thing. And again, I, I you guys have done some great research in the RF. Certainly, has done a lot of good research on radio in the past. Um, and so, uh, let me put a hypothesis out, and then you know you can counter it. Um, mass concurrent reach may have a disproportionate impact relative to people hearing content, the same message in a fragmented manner. Right. It may also be true that if a marketer said, "Let's only target twenty percent of the most of the of the most impactful uh, markets and apply, you know, twenty percent of the markets that drive eighty percent of variation of outcome that we care about as a per given KPI, and only go local." Yeah, markers won't organize to do that. At least that's my observation. That it doesn't matter whether or not that's a that looks like a better way to market or meet uh, apply media. It just doesn't happen. What is it that needs to happen to cause, if if you believe that there are segments of markets where either mass concurrent reach is more impactful and or local concentration of a budget rather than national or international concentration of budget is more important, what needs to happen to make marketers reallocate in those directions? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, technology is making it easier for the buying process. You know, there are 14,000 local radio stations across the country. That is a lot of outlets to figure it out. Um, so when that buyer is looking at a specific market, you know, how do you get your arms around that market in a timely way? So you could look at the number one rated radio station in the market, and that may not be the actual best place to place your advertising because depending on the audience that you're trying to reach, in some cases it could be a sixth ranked radio station or a 10 ranked radio station. So that's where technology programmatic buying is coming in. Plus, of course, selfishly, uh, call the RAB and we'll help you and we'll make it uh, streamlined for you because uh, we know it's hard to get your arms around it. and. Uh, but we want to help make it easier and remind people that it's a great way to target in a market. You know, yeah. Brian, you said something earlier. I just want to go back when we think about why don't people do it. Um, you know, Procter & Gamble is a pretty large advertiser. And Procter & Gamble has been spending in radio, but all of a sudden, a few years back, they weren't spending the same. And they started to look at their marketing dollars and said, first of all, we have all this waste that's going in digital. We're not sure of the environments that our spots are running. They weren't necessarily increasing their budgets, but they were reallocating their budgets. And as they've reallocated their budgets, they've been including broadcast radio in a significant way. So much that when you look at the rankings of advertisers, 
it comes out as the number one advertiser in broadcast radio right now. And their success to the bottom line is proven. And as they've changed their marketing plan, they've seen documented growth in product sales. Yeah, well, we we're not questioning, of course, the the impact of it. Uh, I think it's just a question of like we we observe that for most marketers, uh, it's just not on their radar. It should be, and that's why obviously you're here. But but uh, maybe a related point uh, that I, I'd also love to get your take on. Uh, as listeners to our podcast will know, I was absent for a few weeks because I was uh, mostly in France, uh, and I think uh, mostly hunting chocolate. Um, How lovely! Yeah, no, <laughs> it, it was well, not just that, but um, but as I may have mentioned or may not have mentioned, I drove about uh, four thousand miles, mostly across France, uh, during during this uh, travel, and whether I was in Basque Country or whether I was uh, near Belgium or whether I was uh, in the south or wherever I was, I could hear basically the same radio station everywhere. And one observation we have, because this is a global podcast, we have a global audience here. Absolutely. Um, radio in many countries, if not most countries, is organized much more on national lines, which is arguably more consistent with the way that marketers generally want to organize their budgets. Mm -hmm. and, and when you layer on that increasingly, although there are local elements to individual radio stations, of course, the programming is often very nationally oriented. It's just the local ad inventories, the ad inventory is local. Is there, do you think that the industry should be more oriented towards that national uh, programming strategy, that national um, platforming? Uh, we see it with network radio, of course, but is that, would that be a more favorable thing or should the industry be doubling down on local and find ways to be more and more local and then encourage marketers to organize on a more local basis? That's a big question. Uh, and it, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't really have the answer to that. I, I think it really depends. Now you have many radio stations who um, from during the daytime, let's say, are running local programming. They have a local morning show. And, but later in the day, they're carrying network programming. You also see some major personalities like Elvis Duran or Bobby Bones that are national personalities that are running on multiple radio stations at the same time. So, you know, let's take television. You know, Johnny Carson at its peak um, in a local market was considered great local programming, even though he was national. Conversely, you have some national programming that may not be doing great in the ratings. So it isn't necessarily a matter of national versus local. It's more of a matter of what is the best programming available at that time that can reach the largest audience. So, um, you know, that's probably not the answer you wanted. Uh, but a lot of people spend a lot of time balancing the difference between running a national program and a local program. So I guess I'm more of the uh, Trevor Noah generation rather right. than the Johnny Carson generation. But I'm sure that's and I listen to Trevor Noah via his podcast. So are there plans to incorporate Spotify and Pandora and SiriusXM and podcasts into more of a, a consistent view with broadcast radio or 
you know, does that hamper efforts to keep them separated, do you think? Um, well, remember, you don't pay for us. We're free. <laughs> and um, there is a difference to that. And we find that 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 matters. Um, there are also local presences in the markets. So um, there are feet on the street, if you will, whether it's in a non-rated market or, you know, the number one market in the country. So um, the audio services do a fantastic job of uh, providing programming. And it's like satellite does a great job for a disenfranchised listener. And when I say that, I mean, they're, they're offering programming that you may not be able, if you're a jazz fan, for example, Sirius XM offers a great opportunity for that uh, because you wouldn't necessarily have a strong jazz presence if you're in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, if you, you know, want rap music, you're definitely going to get that, whether it's Spotify, Pandora, and that may not be something that you're going to have a pure rap station on the broadcast because we still, um, there's certain programming in that particular category that we can't play. Yeah. So um, I think there's room for everyone, but there are very unique differences between all of them. Makes sense. Um, well, I think this has been great. Uh, it's, it, again, there's lots of good research about radio uh, and its effectiveness. And I don't know if there's any, if you can point us to any, we'll include a link uh, uh, certainly on on, uh, on our podcast when we publish it. Um, you know, I, I've always been, uh, I think many people will know I've always been more than sympathetic to radio, given my uh, origins in uh, campus and community radio in Canada. Uh, so, uh, but I do think that more marketers should be paying attention to uh, to the medium around the world. Um, Kate, anything else to add? No, just thank you so much for joining us, Erica. This was great. Oh, well, thank you for having us. And Brian, thank you so much for sending the chocolate. We really appreciated that. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks very much. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was great to hear from uh, Erica and uh, learn a bit more about radio for, and audio for those unfamiliar. Um, but to uh, to end this week's uh, version of This Week Next Week, we thought it would be good to try a, a new a new segment we, we'd like to call Story Time. On the subject of uh, inflation and recessions, what do you have next for us? Yes, indeed. Well, as we heard from some of the numbers, especially in the UK, where to be clear, like things actually aren't that great. I mean, we are seeing markets where, again, retail sales are actually still growing well ahead of inflation, and we're seeing markets where it is not. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly talk of recession, you know, we've been talking around this a lot. We, we think that there are going to be individual countries which uh, will experience a downturn, even if the overall global economy will not. And so I was reminded of an essay that uh, I read from one Jeremy Bullmore. Uh, Jeremy Bullmore is not necessarily that well known in the US. But longtime readers of Campaign, uh, the historically UK publication, will remember him, hopefully. And of course, people who followed WPP over the decades will uh, remember him for his um, you know, long, long lasting service, certainly at uh, J. Walter Thompson, uh, I want to say starting in the, uh, well, many, many, many decades ago. And, um, and again, starting in 91, I uh, started writing in campaign. I think he was a, a, a director at, at OPP, and then he had an emeritus position uh, and retired uh, recently. Um, 
anyways so this book that came out in the early 2000s it's called called more Bullmore, behind the scenes in advertising mark three and this essay that he wrote i'm going to read to you now so this is our story time grab a cup of tea curl up around your podcast buds how to postpone the beginning of the next recession there was the one that started in 1974, and there was the one that started in 1981, and there was the one that started in 1990, and then there's been quite a lot of talk recently about the one that may or may not start in 1998. What I thought you might find valuable is some actionable advice on how to keep this next recession at bay for a bit. Like all good economic theories, this one is based on an analytical understanding of human absurdity. In all communities, in all villages, in all families, and certainly in all companies, there are two quite distinct groups of people. The first are called go-for-its, and the second are called tooth-suckers. These names are self-explanatory, so let me explain them to you. Go-for-its are genetically, thoughtlessly optimistic. They worship action and despise thought. When faced with a predicament, a crossroads, or a choice of any kind, their immediate instinct is to say, let's go for it. They will expand, acquire, invest, gamble, proliferate, launch 17 brand variants, and confidently set out to take the American retail market by storm. All communities, particularly commercial communities, need go-for-its. Without go-for-its, little, if anything, would ever happen. Tooth suckers are different. When faced with a predicament, a crossroads, or a choice of any kind, their immediate instinct is to suck their teeth. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I can't say I like the look of this one, Chairman. Irrespective of the intrinsic merits of the circumstance, they will argue for caution, dilution, circumspection, and a 10-year test market. All communities, particularly commercial communities, need tooth suckers. Without tooth suckers, companies will go bust even more frequently than they do. These two groups are in constant conflict, and the critical factor that determines expansion or recession is the prevailing balance of power between them. A brief historical review. The Thatcher years did not favor the tooth suckers. For the best part of a decade, doubt was not only unfashionable, but unconstitutional. And so it was that the tooth suckers were made to feel lowly people, derided, despised, ignored. For nearly nine years, not a single tooth sucker's name appeared on the honors list. With only the most muted of challenges, the Goforts held the rampant stage. All over the country, you could hear their cries, let's go for it, let's go for it. While almost inaudibly in the background, you might just pick up a wee complaint of, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. And then came 1990, and the tooth suckers were back in business. It is wrong to believe that everybody hates recessions. Tooth suckers love them. Tooth suckers have their own vocabulary. And within days of the downturn, it was joyously taken out of mothballs and returned to frontline use. Inappropriate, imprudent, precipitate, not altogether timely, chairman. So after 10 years in opposition, the tooth suckers, in a landslide result, not only reacquired power, but became doggedly determined to retain it. Throughout the land, unreported, tooth suckers moved stealthily into top management positions. The recession continued. Economic commentators expressed surprise that consumer confidence was slow to return. Those of us in marketing didn't. Marketing people know a great deal more about human nature than economists do. Marketing people, although they don't like to acknowledge it, have every reason to be grateful for the existence of reluctant consumers. If it weren't for them, we wouldn't have jobs. Can you imagine if all consumers were go-for-its? 
marketing departments and advertising agencies would become obsolete overnight. Unless, of course, their talents were re-employed in a mammoth state-funded campaign in favor of consumer restraint. Luckily for us, a great many consumers have a natural aversion to consumption. They are some of nature's most stubborn tooth suckers. Often, they seem to be in the majority, and they are not stupid. Tooth-sucking consumers are the only ones who've rumbled what consumer confidence really means. It means reacquiring enough confidence to get back into debt. No wonder the length of the recession continued to baffle the economists. Because what a rattling good recession does is give congenital tooth suckers the confidence not to consume. It legitimizes caution and sanctifies parsimony. Visit any furniture showroom and look and listen. A slow shake of the head, I only wish we could, my love, said with lingering enjoyment. The reason that 1990s bust hasn't yet turned into another boom is that it is about to bust is that is at least some top executive tooth suckers are still hanging on in there. But if they came to power in the early 1990s, then most of them will soon be slipping into their home country's cardigans to be replaced by a new eager generation of managers, a generation who didn't, as managers, live through the pain of 1990. So a generation is likely as not containing an unusual number of go-for-its. Maintaining the balance of power between tooth suckers and go-for-its cannot be left to market forces alone. That's what induces cyclical economic turbulence. This is a job for a small, low-profile group called the head scratchers. Head scratchers honor both go-for-its and tooth suckers, but value balance more. There is bound to be another recession, I suppose. But if every company listens very carefully to its resident head scratcher, it needn't come just yet. So what are you, Kate? Head scratcher, tooth sucker, go for it. Oh boy. Um, I'm in my personal consumption patterns. I don't know, probably more uh, tooth sucker with bouts of uh, go for it. Interesting. I, I, I'm a head scratcher. I think yeah. that's the thing. We talked the other week about me being contrarian. I think I'm a head scratcher. <laughs> All right. Well, very quickly now, uh, what's on tap for next week? Well, I think next week we're going to hear uh, a lot more fun information about the continuing advertising economy. I think we will. Um, we have a, an interview lined up that let's let's do it before we we tease it too much. Um, but we'll always have more information here on this week, next week. We're still just catching up from earnings season. That's true. Well, until next time then, uh, this is This Week Next Week, and I'm Kate Scott Dawkins. And I'm Brian Weezer. This Week Next Week is hosted by me, Kate Scott Dawkins, and Brian Weezer. Our producer is Jared Bayman. Our showrunner is Sam Weston. The views and opinions expressed here are our own and are not intended to represent those of Group M or its clients. If you have questions, comments, or requests for future segments, let us know at business.intelligence at groupm.com. <laughs> <laughs>